Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Ian, and I'm one of the members of the preaching team here, and one of the downsides to that is I preach infrequently enough to where I can't remember what I wore the last time I preached here. So if you're looking at me thinking, didn't he wear that last time? Uh, maybe, and I'm sorry, just please forgive me. I do have other clothes, but yeah. <laughs> so now, um, we're going to be starting out a new series this morning, which is... Uh, a bit of a challenge for me because whenever I launch a new series, and this is our new alternate series, uh, to me it feels like it's two sermons in one because I'm cramming together all this overview and background and all that kind of stuff, and then the actual sermon. So you could think of it as like a three-course meal or whatever, but we're going to go really fast. So um, I asked Dan if we could install seat belts on the pews. He said we didn't have enough time, but still just imagine buckle in, get ready to go, and uh, you know... Uh, hold on. So uh, to get it started, I want to mention the idea of self-esteem. I hate that word. I hate that concept, self-esteem. I hope that my kids do not have any self-esteem. And you might be thinking, wow, he's a bad dad. (laughs) But but I want to describe maybe why, and hopefully as we go through the message this morning, you'll see what I mean by that. There was uh, a news article that came out, I think, earlier this week, maybe late last week on the, the 20th or something. It was an ABC report. I found it on a website somewhere. Um, and it was called Instagram and Self-Esteem. How many likes are enough? <laughs> so um, I, I've, I've got some quotes from that article uh, that, that you'll be able to look at here in a moment. Uh, the article interviewed a, a gal named Rachel and Elena. They were the, um, uh, they're twins, and they had just been given uh, an Instagram account by their parents. And uh, let's see, seventh grade, and uh, they'd had Instagram for about six months. And then, um, so they, they were featured in this news report, this, this interview. And in the interview, uh, Rachel said, uh, quote, it definitely makes me feel a little bit better when more people like it. Uh, Like it, meaning her, uh, like a picture that she puts on Instagram. Uh, And then she said, but when I notice a photo doesn't get a lot of likes, it might cross my mind a little bit. Does someone not like this picture or do they not like me? So, you know, we're raising a generation of uh, young people who are growing up in a digital age where their life is public domain. And, uh, and so this article was talking about, you know, what the, uh, what the impact of that is on their self-esteem. And, uh, and when I think about that, I'm reminded that Jesus um, wasn't really too concerned about whether or not people liked him. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't chasing people down when they left, saying, oh, no, wait, you misunderstood me. Let me try to explain it again. You know, the rich young ruler left. Uh, the crowds in John chapter 6, after Jesus said some really hard things, they just left. Jesus was more concerned about making sure people knew him rather than liked him. Because I, I believe, to, to quote the words of, is it Data or Data in Star Trek Next Generation when he was giving a funeral for someone and he said uh, to know him was to love him. Any Trekkies remember that at all? Yeah, Mac, okay, yeah. You probably even know who he was talking about when he said, I, I don't remember. But anyway, to, to know, like to truly know God is to love him. 
but he was more concerned about people knowing him than just liking him. Uh, a good example of that is found in Matthew chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to be throwing a lot of scripture out there. You can turn to it if you want to, but I'm not going to maybe wait as long as I normally would just to warn you ahead of time because we do have a lot to cover. Matthew chapter 9 and beginning in verse 9, uh, the story goes, uh, this is Jesus um, collecting disciples. Actually, I believe one of them is Matthew, the tax collector. Verse 9 says, Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he, Matthew, rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table um, in the house, that would be Matthew's house, uh, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So there's Jesus at a party at Matthew's house. Matthew, bad dude. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, now, I love that. When uh, the the Pharisees were complaining to his disciples, not to him himself, Uh, but Jesus heard it. Maybe he overheard it. Maybe the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. We don't really know. But so he answers the question for the disciples so they don't have to. So uh, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus was quoting Hosea in that statement. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus wanted them to understand something about his heart. He was revealing God's heart to the Pharisees. And their heart was too hard and they didn't, they didn't receive it. They didn't uh, appreciate the knowledge of who Jesus was. You know, and they went on to try to kill him and eventually succeeded. But Jesus was more concerned with them knowing something about him than making sure that they liked him. And we're actually going to be launching into a a new series called Minor Prophets, Major Wisdom, and we're going to look at the 12 minor prophets. We'll we'll devote one sermon sermon to each one in this alternate series. And so today I'm going to be uh, going over Hosea, but first, here's the first course of the meal. I'm going to give you a little bit of a background on Hosea, the the guy that that Jesus quotes, and also just the minor prophets in general. So um, in your notes, you'll, you'll see the little blank there, background information for the minor prophets. Now, um, I'm a history nerd. I love history. I, I teach history. Um, and if that's not you, then feel free to get out your cell phone and update your status or check your, you know, how many likes you've gotten or whatever, right? <laughs> and, you know, and we'll come back to the real important stuff a few minutes later. But if you're like me and you like history and understanding kind of the cultural historical context of what it is we're looking at, then, then tune in. Feel free to jot something down if it is interesting to you. Okay, some background on the, the minor prophets um, overall. I'm just going to throw this at you real quick. First of all, um, when you think of the minor prophets, uh, think of them having four major components to their message. The first one would be that they would identify sin. As a prophet, they were speaking forth uh, truth of God. They were God's mouthpiece. So they were identifying sin. Uh, they were calling people to repent of that sin. Uh, they were warning people of God's judgment against that sin. And, and they would promise a hope and a future 
to the people. So you'll generally see those themes kind of woven throughout the, not just the minor prophets, but, but all the, the prophets in the Old Testament. And the time period that these guys existed when they did the ministry, uh, they ranged all the way from when the nation of Israel divided all the way up to uh, through the exile period and the restoration period. Now let me tell you a little bit about what that means. In uh, 930 BC, some people say 931, but... You know, I tell my students, like, it's, it's ancient, you know, and so give or take a year or whatever. Um, but around 930 B.C., uh, Solomon was dead, and uh, the nation of Israel experienced a civil war. Uh, the, the throne of God, you know, the throne of David, God reigning in over Israel through the anointed king, David, and then Solomon, it was in Jerusalem, which was in the southern kingdom. And, uh, and the north rebelled against the south, kind of opposite of what we experienced here a couple hundred years ago. Yeah, I'm not, I don't teach math, so, yeah. <laughs> and, and so um, the, uh, the nation divided, and um, the, the north had its own throne, its own uh, set of kings, and um, uh, it was like I mentioned up there, it's ten tribes uh, in the north. Sometimes it's referred to as Ephraim or Samaria, uh, which was where they set up their capital in the northern kingdom. So there were a total of 12 tribes of Israel, 10 of them in the north, rebelled against the south, set up their own, and, and there was a division. And throughout the course of the, the next two or 300 years, uh, they, uh, the north and the south, went apostate. They fell away from the Lord. They worshiped false gods. God brought in some people uh, to judge and discipline them, carried them off to exile, and they, they were in exile uh, depending on you know the north or the south for quite a while, and then um, and then God brought them back and restored them, and uh, and then they rebuilt the city, they rebuilt the temple, and and the the prophets you know when we read the prophets in the Old Testament they existed you know, they did their ministry during that whole time period. Some of them are warning, hey repent or God's going to bring you into exile, which happened. They didn't repent and they went into exile, and then some of them you know centuries later are encouraging the people while they're in exile. Hey, God still is, you know, God, and you still are his people. Turn back to him, um, you know, remain faithful, you know, that kind of thing. They were encouraging during that time of exile. And then some of them, after Israel was brought back, some of them were encouraging uh, the, the nation of Israel, like, hey, you know, you've been brought back, but you still have work to do. Finish the reconstruction of the temple. Finish the reconstruction of, you know, of the city. And so we see all of that huge time period in the Minor Prophets, just so you know. Uh, the Northern Kingdom um, lasted from 930 to 722 BC, and then Assyria came and, and conquered them. Uh, they had a total of 19 kings. The Southern Kingdom, that was called Judah. Uh, the tribe of Judah was the big tribe in the Southern Kingdom. The, Northern, the other one was Benjamin, tiny little tribe. And then uh, that one lasted... A, a bit longer till 586, and then Babylon came and conquered them, and they had 20 kings over the course of that time. By the way, the 19 kings in the north, the 20 kings in the south, not very many good ones. Not very many good ones at all. In fact, some would say in the north they had this many good ones, zero. Yeah. And uh, in the south they had a, a small handful. And, um, and that's one of the reasons that the people fell away and that God uh, brought discipline to them. Okay, so that's just a little bit of history, uh, some background there. Now, when we read 
the, the minor prophets, it's important to understand that a lot of the, po- the prophetic message is poetic. Now, I don't know if you like to read poetry. Sometimes I'm in a poetic, romantic kind of mood. Sometimes I just want to hear a good story. And in the prophets, we get both. We get some good story and we get some good poetry. Um, a couple of things about Hebrew poetry. Uh, it's made to be felt when you read it. So when you're reading Hebrew poetry, or really any poetry, don't think that it's, well, I'm trying to glean information. Yes, there is information, but it's supposed to impact the heart. That's what poetry does. So when you read it, look for imagery, look for figures of speech, you know, look for uh, metaphors, uh, just the, the way that they're communicating poetically. And it's important to know, in case you're thinking, hey, it's poetry, why doesn't it rhyme? Well, in Hebrew poetry, they rhyme ideas, not necessarily words. So uh, you'll see a lot of parallelism, like a a phrase stated once and then repeated slightly different uh, in in the second line, or sometimes uh, repeated in an opposite way. So just know that they rhyme ideas, not, uh, not words. Okay, let's see. Background information. I think I already gave you a little bit about the history of it, but let's go on and, and look at the time span just real briefly, and then I promise we'll be done with the history lesson and we can get on into the nation of Israel. Um, no, actually, we're going to skip that because of time. So, okay, history lesson over. You can put your phones away. You can tune back in. I hope you got some likes on whatever you posted just now, especially if it was about Flight of Bible Church and how awesome God is. So, Hosea. Uh, I want to look now at the audience that Hosea was speaking to. So a bit of a fib. There's some more background and some more history here as well. Um, the, the people that Hosea was preaching to uh, in the north, uh, they were politically independent and prosperous. As, as we go through this, I want you to think about uh, you personally. Think about our church. Think about our country. Um, ask, ask God, you know, how does this apply to me in, in the world that I live in right now? And I'm thinking, okay, politically independent and prosperous. Yeah, okay, America. <laughs> so let's look at Hosea chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, where, where Hosea describes their, their independence and their prosperity. Uh, God says of Israel, um, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. By the way, those are bad altars. They're not the kind of altars that God wanted them to build. They were altars to false gods. They were altars to to Baal. So the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. The self-reliance, you know, know, being being independent, right? Uh, Their heart is false, Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So here's Hosea uh, confronting them on their their, uh, political independence, their their self-reliance, and um, and really how they, they were prospering, but they weren't honoring God in that. Okay, uh, point two in, in terms of who the people are that Hosea was speaking to. Uh, they were spiritually bankrupt and adulterous. I mentioned that those altars were not built to Yahweh. Uh, the altars were built to, to Baal. Now, if, um, 
If you were to travel back in time and walk along the streets in Israel and you were looking at the back of the chariots and the bumper stickers, um, you would see a coexist bumper sticker, right? (laughs) You know, the the whole idea of um, all truth is God's truth. And, oh, you know, we worship Baal and you worship, you know, Asherah and you worship what, you know, it's all, it's good. We're worshiping God, they were spiritually bankrupt. They had, they had mixed their religion with the religion of the pagan people around them, and they were thinking that it, they had fooled themselves. Oh, yeah, we're worshiping God. And God says, no, you are not. And God calls it adultery. And that is really important to understand the context of, of the book of Hosea. God says, you are an, a spiritually adulterous people. Now, it would be easy for us to be like, yeah, those, those Israelites, boy, howdy, they, they weren't very faithful to God, were they? Remember, we want to see us, I want to see me in this story. And sometimes I don't like what I see. Because there are times when I make choices, when I have motives, when I, um, when I seek something to satisfy that is not what God wants for me. Uh, I... I stand before you as a spiritual adulterer. Scarlet letter right here. Right? By God's grace, he's redeemed that and he's, uh, and he's growing, you know, making me more like him. And, and I would be so bold as to say that that's true of all of us. Unless you've never sought satisfaction, you know, where you shouldn't, or unless you've never had a selfish thought or motive or... Uh, you know, some, uh, the emptiness of the world or the vain conceit or the pride or the, you know, whatever. I mean, if you've never had any of that, then, then sure, maybe you're not spiritually adulterous. But chances are, if you're honest with yourself, you can look at this story and you can say, yeah, there have been times when I've cheated on God. There have been times when God wanted my heart close to his so he could give me what satisfies, and I, I sought that elsewhere. I, I zoned out on Facebook. I, I, I binged a whole weekend of whatever that show is instead of really dealing with the hard things in my life. You know, I sought to numb my pain. I, I neglected my priority. Whatever it is, right? I have committed spiritually adult, spiritual adultery against the Lord. So I see myself in this story. I'm, I'm Hosea. No, I'm sorry. I'm Gomer, not Hosea. That'll make sense in a moment. It might make sense now if you know the story. Okay, so uh, let's look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. This is an indictment against the nation of Israel. Remember, the identifying of sin, the calling to repent, the warning of judgment, that's common theme in the, in the Minor Prophets. Hosea says, uh, Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Because they, By the way, that vulture was Assyria threatening to come in and take them away. Uh, into captivity. Uh, one like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me, they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. It's a bunch of empty lies. They're worshiping Baal, they're worshiping pagan gods. And by the way, Baal worship was, um, was uh, grotesquely immoral. And if you want to know more, then check out Google carefully. So they cry, uh, my God, we, Israel, know you. 
Israel has spurned the good. The enemy will pursue him. Again, the enemy being Assyria. They made kings, but not through me, says the Lord. They set up princes, but I knew it not. See that rhyming of ideas there? Kings, princes, not through me. I didn't know it. Uh, They set up princes, but I didn't know it. Uh, With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. He goes on, I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? Have you ever heard the story of the golden calf? Yeah, okay, Exodus, you know, Moses is up on the mountain getting the, the tablets, the law of God, people of Israel down there. Uh, ask Aaron, hey, make us a calf, because we don't know what happened to Moses and his God. They make a calf, you know, worship it, debauchery, bad. 3,000 people died that day when Moses came down from the mountain and God judged them. <laughs> it's like they don't know their own history. Here they are, the northern kingdom, um, the, the, the king that rebelled against the south, said, hey, I don't want our people going down to Jerusalem to go to church to worship uh, because that's in the, you know, the southern kingdom, because that, that was the, the rightful, you know, throne of David was in the southern kingdom. That's where the temple was. So the nor- king in the north says, I know what I'll do. Uh, let's make some golden calves, and, and we'll put one at the top of the northern kingdom. We'll put one down at the southern border, and people can just go uh, worship there. Did you read your Bible? It didn't work out well the first time with this whole golden calf thing, but that's what they did. So, uh, made a golden calf. So, God says, I've spurned your calf, O Samaria. And then uh, verse 8, it is from Israel a craftsman made it, not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken into pieces. That's actually what happened with the first one in the book of Exodus. It was ground up and put in water and they had to drink it and anybody that didn't repent was killed and it's bad. Uh, And then verse seven, uh, they, the nation of Israel, sow the wind and they will reap the whirlwind. Have you ever heard that phrase? They who sow to the wind will reap the whirlwind. It's it's a term of uh, increase, right? You put this much in, you get this much out. It can be positive or it can be negative. In this case, it's negative. They're, they're sowing a little bit of sin and they're going to reap a huge judgment. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flour. If it were to yield, then strangers would devour it. So yeah, even if you do get a little bit of harvest, don't worry. Um, it'll be taken from you. The enemy will come and steal it. This is warning of judgment. This is God telling his people, would you please come back to me? Would you please be faithful to me? Would you please repent? Okay, so they were politically independent and prosperous. Uh, They were spiritually bankrupt and adulterous. And thirdly, they were morally corrupt and judged. They were morally corrupt and judged. Let's look at Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And by the way, I encourage you sometime between now and, and next week, uh, read the book of Hosea. It's not too long. Um, you could do it in a couple of days of devotional time or whatever. Um, we're just giving you a little bit of a taste here, and I, and I hope that you'll take some time to, to feast on, on all of it. So Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord, O God, o, o children of Israel. For the Lord has controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, 
and no knowledge of God in the land. Remember, I said Jesus was more interested in people knowing him than liking him. So here, God says, there's no knowledge of me in the land. What there is, verse 2, well, there's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And then verse 6 of chapter 4. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. Since you have forgotten the law of God, I also will forget your children. The nation of Israel in Exodus 19 was brought to the mountain of God, and God made a covenant with them and said, I will be your God and you will be my people, and you will be a nation of priests for me. So Israel's job was to represent Yahweh to the whole world. And, and here God says, um, in the words of a famous certain someone, you're fired. <laughs> so I couldn't help it. <laughs> they are no longer his priests. They are no longer going to represent him to the rest of the world. They're not being the kind of person God wants representing him to the world. They're not being faithful to him. And then he says, and I will forget your children. Now, any of you who are parents, uh, you probably have, just like I do in my heart, a desire for your children to walk with God, to know God, uh, to, to thrive in him. Imagine if you were on your deathbed and God comes to you and says, um, I reject you and your children. And then you die hopeless, right? There's no, there's no uh, legacy in that. That's what's happening to the nation of Israel at this point. He's, you guys are about to be dead, and just so you know, even your kids, I'm rejecting them. So God's discipline, God's um, judgment against sin is real. And um, our country doesn't really, our, our culture doesn't really um, talk about that much. The fact that God judges sin, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis once talked about how most people want a senile old grandpa rather than a loving father. Uh, senile old grandpa doesn't judge sin. A loving father does. And I actually take comfort in the fact that God will judge sin because... Um, there's forgiveness, but there's also justice. And so if you have ever experienced injustice and you've been the recipient of injustice, then you can appreciate that God will judge sin. And if you've ever sinned, you can appreciate that God is merciful. And we'll talk about that later. Okay, so they were politically independent and prosperous. They were spiritually bankrupt and adulterous. Uh, they were morally corrupt and judged. And then, and then finally, they were miraculously forgiven and restored. What? <laughs> miraculously forgiven and restored. He just got done saying, you know, I, I reject you. I reject your children. You're not going to be my priest. You are spiritually adulterous and morally bankrupt. And, uh, and, and then miraculously forgiven and restored. And that's where I say, thank you, God, for who you are. Let's take a look at chapter 14, uh, verses 4 through 8. I want you to notice uh, where in, in this section where God says what he will do 
and what will happen because of what he will do. He says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots will spread out, and his beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, that's another word for Israel. Uh, What have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. It's like the nation of Israel is going to these idols saying, help us, help us. Of course, I made you, but help me. Like, how does that work, right? I I don't get it, but I do it in other ways. And and God says, you're calling the wrong number. You're barking up the wrong tree. I'm the one who will answer you. Call to me. Like an evergreen cypress, um, from me comes your fruit. So God, through Hosea, um, identifies their sin of spiritual idolatry and all the other sins that went with that. Uh, He challenges them to repent. He warns them of God's judgment, and he promises a future hope in light of that judgment. There's this this incredible uh, picture of God's character in, in all of that. Okay, now with the, uh, the time we have remaining, let's actually look at a bit of the story, the, the actual message of Hosea, because it's not just poetic prophecy. There is actually a story involved here. And I called this message um, God's Transforming Love. And uh, hopefully that'll make sense to you as we look at the actual story of Hosea. Uh, in, in the first three chapters, we see how God's covenant love rescues us and I say us because I want us to see us in the story of Hosea. God's covenant love, chesed is the Greek word. Just clear your throat a little bit and put an ed on the end of it. Chesed. It's God's covenant love. It rescues us through, and, and we see this illustrated through four really difficult commands that God gives to Hosea. Some people have said, well, I don't think this ever really actually happened. It's just a cool story, kind of like Jonah and some of those other fables. Um, I I don't believe that to be true. I believe this to be uh, historically accurate um, events as well as a message that applies to me today. So, um, and if you have questions about that, feel free to ask me afterwards or ask Scott when he gets back. It's probably better. Okay, uh, so the, the first command that God gives him, marry a difficult woman, I'm sorry, marry a woman that you know will be, <laughs> I didn't say that, no. although I'm sure she was difficult in many ways, but he, God says to Hosea, marry a woman that you know will be unfaithful to you. These were difficult commands, not a difficult, okay, yeah. Marry a woman that you know will be unfaithful to you. Now think back to when you got married, if you are married, or if you're not married, think forward to when you want to get married. And, uh, and you, the, the person that you did or will be marrying, and you think, you know, what, what I'm looking for in a spouse is someone who, uh, they're, they're going to cheat on me every chance they get. Uh, let's see, they'll, they'll become a prostitute. 
and, um, and maybe they'll have some kids that aren't mine. Nobody wants that. That's what God told Hosea to do. Go marry a woman that you know will be unfaithful to you. In this story, uh, we see us as Hosea's wife. And we see God as Hosea. Let's look at the command in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. God says to Hosea, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take for yourself a wife of whoredom. I love how the Bible sanitizes things, right? For some reason, that sounds spiritual or biblical or whatever. She was a prostitute. You know, insert offensive colloquialism right there, right? Okay. Go marry a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he, Hosea, went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. You know, serving God isn't always puppy dogs and rainbows. I, I just got to say, um, Hosea probably thinking, Lord, um, could, could I pursue a different career path? Is it too late? <laughs> Be, being a servant of God isn't always puppy dogs and rainbows. But just like the prophets, we have a hope that goes beyond our present reality. Hosea knew uh, God's heart. And as Hosea is proclaiming God's heart to, his, to God's people, Hosea knows who God is. And so he's able to do these really hard things because he's got a future hope. You know, in Hebrews, it, speaking of Jesus enduring suffering, it says that, that he despised the shame of the cross for the hope that was set before him. And so uh, serving God or just living in a broken world, um, there is pain, there is discouragement, there is difficulty. But knowing that God wins and that I get to spend eternity with him in glory, it makes this small blip of a life so much more endurable. And so you you might feel like, wow, Lord, um, why did you pick me to serve you? Because this is horrible. (laughs) Well, just, just know that there's hope. There's an eternal reward. So God tells Hosea, go, um, marry this woman, uh, have kids, and she will not be faithful to you. So he does. He marries her, has a kid. Uh, the second difficult command that God gives uh, to Hosea is to name your children to represent God's judgment. Now, I, I know a lot of people. In fact, um, my, my personal banker at Chase Bank, not a commercial, I'm just saying, he's a cool guy, he's a Christian, and, um, and he was very intentional about uh, the names that he gave his kids and the meanings of those names. And you might be that way when you're thinking about what you want to name your kids. Um, God was intentional about naming Hosea's kids. But these are horrible names. And I, would, I feel bad for these kids. Let's look at uh, chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. 
the Lord said to him, uh, the first one, the one that, you know, the, uh, call, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. We don't have time to get into the history of all that, but it's, it's really cool stuff. Um, I will punish the house of Israel for Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. That's like saying, uh, name him, I'm going to get you. <laughs> it's just like like ow <laughs> you know so talk about self-esteem these kids didn't have any right like like hey i'm gonna get you come here <laughs> but it's symbolic it's it's god um giving them uh, a a very real symbol of his judgment against them for their sin um, so, uh, it goes on in, in verse 6. So uh, she, Gomer, conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for the Lord will have no mercy on the house of Israel uh, to forgive them all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. Judah was a southern kingdom. Um, I will not save them by the bow or, or the sword or by war or by horses or horsemen. Okay, so child number two, no mercy. So he said, I'm going to get you and no mercy. Man, this is like Thanksgiving dinner must have been pretty miserable, or, you know? It's like these kids. You know, names mean something. A name is a label, right? And so these kids are labeled these disciplines from God. And, and by now, the nation of Israel might be thinking, hey, Hosea, could you stop having kids? <laughs> like, who's good? Okay, but it goes on. When she had weaned no mercy, I thought about putting this in quotes, but it's, the ESV doesn't, you know, so. Um, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. Now, notice it does not say that she conceived by Hosea and bore a son. And interestingly, the Lord said, call his name, not my people. The literal Hebrew means not mine. So I'm going to get you, no mercy and not mine. (laughs) Wow. Hmm. The Lord said, call him, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people. And I am not your God. Now that might seem hopeless. That might seem difficult. If the nation of Israel were to receive that message, then, oh, okay, now what? God's rejected us. Now remember, see us in this story. See me, see you, yourself in this story sinned against God, gone against his ways, sought satisfaction elsewhere. And God says, I'm going to get you and I'm not going to have mercy and you are not mine and I am not yours. And I'm standing there going, I got nothing because I've made a mess out of everything. 
and now God's rejected me? Um, now what? Well, let's look at the next command that God gave to Hosea. Predict complete restoration without even explaining how it happens. So let's look at the next few verses here in chapter one. Yet the number of the children of Israel will be like the sand of the sea. He just got done saying, I'm not going to be your God and you're not going to be my people. And now, whoot, big change. Uh, The number of the children of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. The promise that God gave Abraham back in Genesis 12. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, oh, like verse 9, it will be said to them, children of the living God. Hmm. That's God's mercy. That's God's redemption. God does that work. And there's nothing that I can do to deserve it. Let's look at the final difficult instruction that God gives Hosea. Oh, there's more scripture. We should read that. And in the children and the children of Judah and the children of Israel will be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel which earlier had been a symbol of God's judgment. And so God's talking about how he's going to bring it full circle. He's going to restore that which was broken and that they will again be his people. They will again serve him faithfully. All right, so let's look at how that happens. The final command that God gives to Hosea, uh, predict, no wait, uh, unamas. There there should be a, uh, um, there we go. Um, So buy Gomer back from slavery and restore her. Slavery? What, wait, what just happened? I thought she was uh, having children representing God's discipline and now buy her back from slavery? Okay, well, read the book of Hosea. It tells us some of how that happened. Uh, let's look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. The Lord said to me, Hosea, go again and love again, right? Chapter one wasn't painful enough, you know, marrying a woman that he knew was going to be unfaithful and then having children and naming them after God's discipline. So God says, go again. And Hosea's like, oh, again, I know I shouldn't have checked my email this morning. (sighs) Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Remember that third child was called not mine. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes and raisins. And that's a reference to uh, the various ways that they would worship their, their pagan fertility gods. So, you know, it was very, very grotesquely immoral. We'll just leave it there. God says, okay, Hosea, you represent me. Your wife, Gomer, represents my people. I love them in spite of what they've done. 
Because of my love for my people, I want you, Hosea, to go and buy back your wife from slavery, the woman that played the harlot. Somehow she ended up in slavery. Maybe um, she, you know, debtor's prison or whatever, sold into slavery. And, and God says to Hosea, go, go get her back and love her. Now, I know that there are people in this room who have been deeply wounded by marital unfaithfulness. And, and I know that the Bible says a lot about marital unfaithfulness and divorce and when we can or should or when we shouldn't and all of that kind of stuff. And I'm not going to open up that, that issue of, you know, when is divorce okay and when should I or whatever. But I just want to point out that God uses the illustration of marriage in the book of Hosea to describe his unconditional, faithful love for me when I don't deserve it. And in Ephesians, God uses the image of marriage to say that husbands are to love their wives selflessly as Christ loves the church, even to the point of death, giving himself for her. And here in the book of Hosea, God is, is demonstrating that through Hosea. Verse 2, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of barley, and I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Now, I don't want to get too lost in the details of it, but Gomer was probably standing there on an auction block being sold as a slave. A lot of commentators speculate that she was probably completely nude, completely ashamed, completely lacking any hope. And here comes Hosea, her husband the one that she had scorned, the one she had not been faithful to. And he reaches into his pocket and he says, she's mine. And he takes her by the hand, covers her up with his cloak and says, come on, honey, let's go home. You're my wife and I'm your husband. What a beautiful picture of God's love. Because that's each one of us on that auction block. And that's our Savior coming and, and redeeming us and restoring us. Pressing that analogy through, it says, the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel will return. So all that other stuff, that's the bad stuff. That's the discipline. That's the standing naked on the auction block, you know, the dwelling many days without a prince or a king. And then verse five, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God 
and, and David, their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord, reverence, and to his goodness in the latter days. There's that, that fourth element of the prophetic message. There's been the, the calling out of sin. There's been the, the warning of discipline. There's been the call to repent. And, and here's the promise of hope. Through Hosea, God says, there will be a day when, when God will bring you back as his bride. And so when, when I'm standing left with nothing uh, because I've made a mess out of my life, then I can, I can take great encouragement knowing that God is good and that there's nothing I can do to earn or deserve that goodness. Okay, so that, that's the story of Hosea. That's how God connects that illustration to, to the nation of Israel. So what should we take away from that? How should that impact the way that we view God or ourselves or, or life? Okay, got a few things for you here. Our value is based on what God thinks of us. How valuable did Gomer feel standing there having failed as a prostitute and being sold into slavery? Ashamed, naked, probably didn't feel very valuable, probably didn't have much self-esteem. Self-esteem, the esteem that I give to myself. I don't want that. I don't want that for my kids. I don't want that for you. What I want is God-esteem. How much value does God place on me? How much value does God place on my kids? How much value does God place on you? It's not what the world thinks of me. It's not what I think of me. And usually if I try to figure out what I think of me, I think of what does the world think of me. But I want to come to God and say, okay, what do you think about me? And God says, well, uh, you are worth buying back. You are worth forgiving. Not because of anything that I inherently possess, except his image. In the story of creation, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So each one of us bears the image of God. And, and God says, yeah, you've messed it up, you've broken it, you've brought it shame. But you represent me. You have my image. You have my love. You have my chesed. I want you back. So our value should be based on what God thinks of us. Now, make no mistake, God thinks truthfully, right? There's nothing about me God doesn't know. So, uh, you know, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm, I'm part of all, and so are you. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God has redeemed me. God places value on me. God places value on you. Therefore, we are valuable. Okay, the second piece. Um, don't let anything 
take God's place in your life. The nation of Israel had all sorts of idols, all sorts of ways that they were seeking satisfaction other than God himself. And he was very clear about how wrong that was and how he was going to judge them and discipline them for that. I don't want anything taking God's place in my life. And um, the human heart is an idol factory. We are just good at making idols. You know, some people seek satisfaction in, in the clothes they wear or the house they live in or the car they drive or the, the, the nameplate on their desk at work or the, the numbers uh, in their bank account or, you know, the, the, the achievements or the quality of their relationships or, or educational status or whatever. I don't, I don't want to pursue any of that as a way of filling my God-shaped needs because those would become idols and I end up worshiping them. Augustine said that, we, I'm paraphrasing, but Augustine uh, said that uh, we become like that which we worship. And the nation of Israel was worshiping uh, horrible false gods, and they became horrible people. Um, there is no entity in the universe better than God himself. If I become like what I worship, then I ought to worship him. It would actually, I mean, it's kind of paradoxical because I'm appealing to your selfish motives now. <laughs> like if you want to be the best version of you, worship God because you'll become like that which you worship. So selfishly, you should want to worship God selflessly. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of true, but. Okay, uh, don't let anything take play, God's place in your life. And thirdly, be transformed from the inside out. I want to be transformed on the inside. I don't want to just be religious on the outside. Those Pharisees that were condemning Jesus for hanging out with sinners, they didn't know who God was. They didn't understand the character and the nature of God. The nation of Israel, they were outwardly religious, right? Oh, we love you, Lord. And he's like, no, you don't. You're worshiping false gods. You're broken, you know, Jesus said that the Pharisees were like whitewashed tombs. They looked great on the outside, but inside there were dead man's bones. I don't want to just be religious on the outside and, and try hard to look good. That, that brings no benefit. But I want to come to the Lord, like it says in the book of Revelation, I want to come to the Lord and say, ah, I'm poor, I'm naked, I'm wretched. I've got nothing, but you want to clothe me in white. You want to restore me. And so I receive that, Lord. That's the gospel. That's the good news. We've messed up our life. We can't fix it. And God comes and says, I want to restore you. I want to buy you back, redeem you, and call you my own again. Boy, who doesn't want that? So it's an inward transformation, not just an outward religiosity. Okay, and fourthly, I want to love others the way I've been loved by God. I've, uh, through, through my, man, I'm getting old, through my decades of ministry, I've had so many opportunities to come alongside um, marriages that are struggling. And I've talked with married people who have said, how can I love that person? 
They treat me this way. They treat me that way. They do this. They don't do that. Blah, blah, blah. And I don't mean to diminish those, those pains because those are real. The answer, I can't, but God can. If I have truly received his love, if I have truly been Gomer on the auction block, ashamed, feeling worthless, and if I've truly been bought back and redeemed and restored by God's unconditional love, then why can't I love people that way? It's like the story that Jesus told about the guy who uh, was um, owed his master a gazillion dollars. I think that's what it says in the Greek. I'm not exactly sure. It's a whole lot of money. And, uh, and there was no way the guy could pay it back. And, and the, the master was going to throw him in debtor's prison until he paid off the last cent, which, by the way, it's hard to pay off money when you're in prison. So uh, the guy uh, falls down on his knees and begging, begging, uh, begging and pleading, begging, he, he says, please forgive me, just give me a chance. I'll pay back every last cent. And the master knows full well that the guy can't. So he says, you know what? Write it off. You don't owe me a thing. Go. And then that guy walking down the road sees someone that owes him five bucks. And he goes up to him and he says, you give me that five bucks right now or I'm gonna... <laughs> and Jesus tells this story as an answer to Peter's question. Well, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? And Peter was padding the numbers there. The, uh, the Pharisees said three, so he doubled it plus one, thinking that's a pretty good answer, right? And Jesus says, no, how about 70 times seven, meaning don't bother counting. And then he tells that story. Don't be like that guy that's been forgiven an infinite debt, and then you go and strangle someone for five bucks. If I am really aware of who I am, and what God has forgiven me of, I ought, to, I ought to let that love flow through me. I ought to love people around me the way he has loved me. All right, so that's the book of Hosea in a nutshell. I really do encourage you to, to read the whole thing. It won't take you too long. But I trust that you would be blessed by it. Uh, let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for giving us awareness of the way that we have sinned against you. I thank you for the uh, forgiveness that you offer. And Lord, if there's anyone here in this room that has not um, ever received that forgiveness, I pray, God, that they would come to you uh, in, in humility and, and say, Lord, I've messed up my life and I can't fix it. Would you please take me back? Would you please buy me back? Restore me? Thank you, Jesus, that your death on the cross has made that possible. Thank you for conquering death by raising again three days later. Lord, guard our hearts from idols. And thank you for rescuing us. In Jesus' name, amen.